Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is Season 2, Episode 2, The Peloponnesian War. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. I am joined today by my colleagues in the Strategy and Policy Department. First, we have Dr. John Maurer. John, welcome. Next, we have Dr. Mark Genest. Mark, welcome. Always a pleasure. And last, but certainly not least, Commander Josh Hammond, United States Navy and a Classics major. So <laughs> here to talk about the Peloponnesian War. Welcome, Josh. Uh, okay, so I thought we'd, we'd start it out. Um, since this is the senior course, um, different set of course themes, kind of using those as, as somewhat of a lens. Talking about the course theme, the decision for war. And, and also mixing it in with the, with the concept of rational calculus that we talk about with Clausewitz. Um, the Athenians make this decision for war, and in, in some ways, one could argue it doesn't seem to really be in the national interests of their polis, but yet they, they do it anyway. Um, so kind of want to throw that one open for, um, um, uh, for some ideas, and, uh, and John, we'll go ahead and start with you. Well, uh, one big takeaway from Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, one that resonates with today, is that when great powers go to war, the amount of destruction that they can cause, that it ends up that you start to question whether anybody is a winner from such wars. And the Peloponnesian War certainly highlights that because even though ultimately Sparta wins, it wins at such a high cost that it becomes vulnerable to other countries. Um, one thing we see in the strategy and policy course is just how destructive great power wars are. And that's something we should keep in mind today. Now, with regard to Athens going to war, because it lost the war, ultimately, you start to say, well, why engage in the war in the first place? Shouldn't they somehow avoided it? But Pericles makes the case uh, to the Athenian people and convinces them that the Spartans are making unreasonable demands on them and have violated uh, the uh, 30 years truce, the peace that had ended the so-called first Peloponnesian War. And so this is also a great book to look at the topic of appeasement. Pericles makes the case that Athens should not appease Sparta. It should not give in to Spartan demands because he says that if they give in to one Spartan demand, Sparta will just up the ante and keep demanding more. In particular, Sparta asked that Athens remove the Megarian decree, which is economic sanctions, to use our modern terminology, economic warfare against Megara, an ally of Sparta. And Sparta says this is in effect war. It might not be kinetic war, but it's nonetheless war. You're trying to hurt an ally of ours by economic restrictions on Megara. And so they say, we won't go to war. Spartans say we won't go to war if you lift the Megarian decree. And uh, Pericles says no, uh, because if Athens does lift the Megarian decree, Sparta will just ask for more. So this is a great example of an argument against appeasement, appeasing a challenger, uh, a threat uh, from another country. Could the war have been avoided if Pericles had dropped the Megarian decree, convinced the Athenian people of that? Perhaps. Again, this is one of the great what ifs, that there was a, perhaps an exit ramp, an off ramp to avoid this war. So th th this great book by Thucydides just resonates with us today because there are so many elements in it that we can relate to in thinking about, as you said, John, this course theme about origins of war and why great power wars occur. Okay, interesting stuff. Um, Josh, we'll go to you next in this one. No, I, I totally agree with everything John said. I think it is interesting to look at the sort of the 
reluctance everybody shows to going to war here, because despite some rhetoric on both sides, uh, there's no actual fighting for quite a bit. There's a lot of maneuvering, a lot of demands and counter demands, um, a lot of formal declarations of war. Um, so in a sense, there, it's almost as if the protagonists realize what a big decision they're about to make. Um, and I, I agree with John as well that it, you know, it seems from an appeasement or a deterrence point of view that there really isn't a solution here because, I mean, Athens and Sparta have been having these disagreements for, you know, at this point, decades. And there's no reassurance that, you know, rescinding the Megarian decree now is going to mean that, you know, two or three or five or 10 years from now, there won't be another demand that's going to come up. And I, I guess that's a question um, that I think resonates a lot today is, is when is, what's the difference between appeasement and diplomacy? Um, when is it wise to agree to something that maybe you don't want to, but uh, is a better alternative than going to war? And it's a hard decision to make. And I think, as John said, because this war is so long and so destructive and Athens loses, it's, it's easy to see this as a huge mistake. Um, I guess, you know, if you flip around and look to one of our later case studies, when we look at World War II, you know, had that war gone differently, I wonder, you know, how we judge, you know, Britain's decision to appease Hitler leading up to 1939 and then the decision to go to war in 1939. Uh, so I think that's a, a, another interesting way to look at this as well. But I, I couldn't agree more. I think this book, you know, resonates in so many ways. And I like being able to focus on this part of the war in uh, the SLC based on this course theme of the decision for war, because I think it's such a momentous decision uh, that they make. I, and the last thing I'll say, you know, John mentioned the first Peloponnesian War. I think if you look at these two, it might be easy for uh, Athenian or Spartan leaders to think that this war is going to look like the last one. It's going to maybe take a while, but it's not going to be at such a scale or at such cost. And so uh, potentially, you know, that can you know, color anyone's judgment about a decision for war is thinking it's going to look like something that we did last time or it's going to be less you know, fundamental uh, than it will be. Okay. Mark, we'll go to you for the dissenting political scientist view. <laughs> I mean, the correct view. Um, actually, uh, both Josh and John have done a good job talking about the immediate causes of the war. Uh, but let me play Thucydides for a second. Thucydides says, hey, look, the uneven growth of power between Sparta and Athens with the growth of Athens and the fear that causes in Sparta, um, that is what Thucydides argues makes war inevitable. And the reason for that, we, we, today in the 21st century, we call it the theory of hegemonic warfare. Yeah. And that has to do when, when you have a rising power uh, that begins to threaten um, the consensus power, the status quo power, uh, then that makes conf conflict more inevitable. And we also talk about in terms of the security dilemma, uh, where it's an action-reaction cycle in which states arm themselves to ensure their security, but in doing so, they make their neighboring countries more insecure. And as a result, it leads to an arms race, which oftentimes leads to warfare. Um, and Thucydides is called the first political scientist because he says, hey, look, I'm going to give you the causes of the war. Um, but that what I and he starts out with this thesis statement, which essentially says war is inevitable because of the rising power of Athens and, and the fear, the perception of fear that that caused within Sparta. Um, so when we look at immediate causes, we look at the specific decisions that leaders make that make war more or less inevitable. And here's where I completely disagree with Thucydides. War is never inevitable. In fact, what he does is he spends 90% of his book demonstrating that his thesis is incorrect, that it's the decisions made by specific leaders and the perceptions between the two city-states that actually lead to war. So war is never inevitable. I would give Thucydides a C- minus uh, on his essay because essentially he spent most of his time disagreeing with himself. Mm -hmm. Um. So is, I guess the, the, the follow-up then is, um, is there a different, you know, we, we can take that, that line of argument for the Spartans that they were, they were compelled to, to go to war because of the rising power of Athens. But what about on the decision for war on the Athenian side? Pericles, uh, it, it seems like in their 
we won't call it national interest, their interest of their polis, is to maintain their empire, to keep trade going, to keep their, their you know, imperial racket going on. Why would war with Sparta be in their interest to do for, for that? And Mark, we'll, we'll kick it back to you for this one. Well, again, it's that security dilemma. And you have to go back to, uh, the, I think, the role of the Corinthians. I mean, the, the Corinthians are the one with the match that lights the flames of war. And without them, then it makes war you know, much less likely because we have to remember that the Athenians and the Spartans signed a treaty that was meant to last because they thought it was in both their interest to keep peace between them because the real big kahuna, Persia, was always out there as a threat to them. So what happens here is that in classic security dilemma fashion, the Athenians build the Great Wall to protect their city uh, from a land invasion. And the reason they do that is because the Persians came and sacked Athens uh, in the first war and the Spartans who were supposed to come to the defense of the Athenians never did. So again, if you can't depend on your neighbors to protect you, you only have one choice to protect yourself. But in doing so, the Corinthians then set up a narrative that says, hey, guess what the Athenians are doing? They're building this wall. Why? It's not really for defense. It's so that they can continue to expand their naval power at your expense. And now they are invulnerable to you. And therefore, the rising power of Athens is a direct threat to you, Spartans. And it's time to get off your rear end and do something about it. Because the Athenians are much more creative, much more aggressive than you are. And you're, you're basically accept what you have to accept. Okay, Josh, any thoughts on this one? No, I mean, I, the more I think about it, I, I, I mean, I think you could argue that it's not in Athens' interest to do this at all. And I, I think what's interesting here is, you know, there's an argument that, uh, among others, I know Donald Kagan makes, that Thucydides wrote this kind of as a sort of a defensive Pericles policy. Uh, and that at the time, if you look at other sort of contemporary sources, none is sort of historical as Thucydides, but there's a lot of blame uh, you know, levied against Pericles for this. This was a dumb decision that has like led to horrible consequences for Athens. This is just during the plague. They haven't even lost yet when a lot of this is written. And so uh, a lot of contemporaries thought it was a bad decision and it was not in Athens' interest, like you said. Um, you know, Kagan argues that one of the reasons Thucydides writes this is to sort of take some of the heat off Pericles for a variety of reasons. You know, he respected Pericles. Uh, Thucydides even writes in sort of Pericles' obituary that he had the right plan and his plan was going to work if only people had stuck to it. Um, so there may be a little bit of bias there that uh, this isn't treated as critically in Thucydides as maybe it could be because of um, Thucydides' kind of respect uh, for Pericles or maybe his heartfelt belief that this was the right decision. Other than kind of as everyone summarized here, the arguments against appeasing the Spartans, there's no real justification that uh, Thucydides offers for this decision. So, you know, I'm pretty tempted to say that uh, it may have not been in Athens' best interest, especially as we look to our World War I case study. Uh, and as Mark kind of alluded to, sort of a, a rising or revisionist power, uh, you can see a state like Germany, who has a lot of the advantages Athens did, cultural, scientific, you know, e economic, really not benefiting from war as much as it would have benefited from continued peace. Interesting. Okay. John? Well, uh, to build on what Josh said, um, he's right. I mean, uh, at the time, Pericles came in for a lot of criticism, especially after the plague uh, hit Athens. And the Athenian people at that point wanted to uh, seek an end to the war. Uh, Thucydides tells us, and it's in only one sentence, in 430, the Athenians sent a delegation to Sparta to uh, ask for peace. Now, Thucydides doesn't tell us what the terms were that the Athenians put forward. But uh, most historians think that uh, it was that the Athenians would be willing to drop the three main issues that were seen as the trigger for war, that they would lift the siege of Potidaea, uh, that they would drop the alliance with Corsaira, and that they would let go on the Megarian decree. Now, we're told by Thucydides, uh, so again, Thucydides doesn't tell us that, but we can assume that that's what it is. The Spartans said, we won't go to war if you compromise, if you give away on these three issues. 
The Athenians didn't give way because Pericles said, no, that would be appeasement and bad. Uh, they go to Sparta and probably put these on the table. And what they find out uh, is no doubt the Spartans said to them, read my lips. The aim here is free the Greeks, which is to tear down the walls that Mark talked about, disband the Athenian empire, and we're going to end democracy in Athens, and we're going to take your navy away. We'll limit it to 10 triremes. Uh, and we're going to impose a pro-Spartan dictatorship there. That's eventually what Sparta does in 404 BC, by the way. So uh, at that point, that Athenian delegation came back and said, you know what? Pericles was right. This isn't over something trivial. It isn't over Megara. It is over something fundamental. Who's going to be the top leader in the ancient Greek world? And Sparta wants that. It wants Athens to be reduced to a satellite state. And the Athenians say, okay, Pericles, you called that one right. Why don't you deliver a funeral oration? That shows you how much respect we have for you. So I, I, again, the Athenians did doubt, as Josh said, whether it was a good decision. They tried to get out of the war, but the Spartans made unacceptable demands. Now, again, if you go back, though, uh, a couple years, uh, it's not clear to me, however, that if the uh, Athenians had compromised on the Megarian decree, there might well have been uh, an end to the war. Uh, wouldn't have been a war to begin with. Because uh, uh, Thucydides tells us that within Sparta, there's a disagreement. And King Archidamus says, let's not go to war. It's not in our interest to go to war right now. And I think if you had, uh, if the Athenians had been able to give Archidamus this sop of the Megarian decree, maybe he would have been able to prevail in the debate within Sparta about whether to go to war or not. So uh, I agree wholeheartedly with Mark. Not about the grade, but <laughs> I would do a grade appeal if I were Thucydides. <laughs> but, uh, I, but, but I do agree with him that Thucydides' text is much more rich than it's often alleged to be by some people who cherry pick out uh, sentences, quotations, and then run with them. Uh, again, he, Thucydides talks about larger forces, systemic forces that are moving toward conflict. But at the same time, he highlights political and strategic choice, and war is a choice. And so Mark is exactly correct that, in a way, there's a tension here within Thucydides' book between what seems inevitable and also, no, it's not inevitable. There are choices that are made that make things inevitable. Hey, John, can I, can I uh, just jump in? I really want to blame Pericles for this. Uh, because he's one of the most overrated historical figures I can remember. Uh, and the reason for that is, think about what he has a choice to do. Um, both the uh, Corinthians and the Crusarians go, and they explain that, you know, war, war is going to happen between these two city states over uh, Epitomus, um, and the Athenians have a choice. You jump in on the side of the Crusarians, or you jump in the side of the Corinthians. And I understand that Pericles jumps in the side of the Cursurians because A, they're neutral, uh, so it doesn't violate the treaty, uh, and B, he doesn't trust the Corinthians. That's fine. But then what he does is you have a choice between robust deterrence or minimal deterrence. And Pericles, who is way too nuanced for his own good and legalistic, decides he's going to send a minimum deterrent, 10 triremes, to the battle. Uh, and of course, that doesn't do enough uh, to either satisfy the assembly, which sends more triremes after the initial one, but it also doesn't really frighten uh, the Corinthians, and the war occurs, uh, the battle occurs, and then the Athenians get drawn into it. Now imagine if Thucydides, I mean, sorry, Pericles, was a little more hawkish. He needed a little more Cleon in him, because if you had sent a hundred triremes, one of two possibilities would have occurred. One, you would have de de deterred the Corinthians from fighting at all. Or two, if the Corinthians had fought, then guess what? You would have beaten the living hell out of them and then taken the Corinthian ships. So you would have been a more powerful naval power. You would have demonstrated your worth as an ally, and you would have deterred not just the Corinthians, uh, but also the Spartans from even going to war with you. So you want to blame someone for the war? You can blame the Corinthians for stirring up the problems and frightening the Spartans. 
in convincing them to go to war, but you also have to blame, again, the individual decision of the leader of Athens for not preparing for the war and not responding as robustly as he should have. Okay. Um, so let's pull on that thread a little bit. But what I'd like to do, Mark, is instead of talking about the, the proximate cause, which is Corsaira, let's, let's pull it up to the um, underlying cause, which John mentioned in terms of who's going to be the hegemon of, of Greece. So if we look at it from the perspective of Athens and Sparta are on this collision course, potentially. And then if we take the Clausewitzian concept that says, um, you know, attack your enemy strategy, or excuse me, the Sun Tzu concept of attack your energy, enemy's strategy, we could say Pericles probably does a good job because he doesn't want to fight the Spartan army mano a mano. Um, but if we take the Clausewitzian concept of attacking the enemy center of gravity, Athens can't attack the Spartan army. And, and they know, Pericles knows that. So his, his theory of victory for this conflict, how does, it, it seems like this, this not attacking the enemy strength not, or, or attacking the enemy strategy by not fighting the Spartan army is a strategy to not lose, but it's not exactly a strategy to win, if that makes sense. So what is his theory of victory? How does Athens as a maritime power that cannot attack on land, Sparta, how do they expect to beat the, the Spartans? Is it just by negotiation? And I, let's, uh, Josh, we'll go ahead and start this one with you. Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think this calls into, you know, play some of the um, strategic fallacies that I think um, Dave Stone mentioned in his lecture, where you look at either script writing or mirror imaging. So if Pericles' strategy is going to work, it's going to work because either the Spartans do what Pericles wants them to do to make that strategy work, so some script writing, or because he assumes the Spartans are going to react the same way either the Athenians or Pericles himself would if they were if he were in their shoes. And so I think you're right. There, there's this sort of um, overly rational approach that either uh, Sparta will get frustrated because they can't do anything uh, and give up, or they won't be able to do anything uh, and therefore give up. And so Athens, I think, is very much playing to not lose. I, along those lines, I am very persuaded by an article that was actually in the Naval War College Review by uh, Carl Walling that talked about that there may be a little more um, play in both Athenian and Spartan aims, uh, that both of them kind of have a minimum aim and a maximum aim. So while you're exactly right, Athens' minimum aim is to not lose, essentially to keep what they have, maintain the status quo. Um, over time, they may be pushed a little bit more towards a maximum aim. The same way uh, that John talked about Sparta, they started off just saying, hey, let's rescind the Megarian decree. Let's do these other couple you know, minor things. And that later transition said, oh, no, we're going to you know, uh, free the Greeks. We're going to you know, impose some pretty draconian penalties on Athens for you know, kind of their transgressions. Uh, you can see that there's some flexibility there. And as the war goes on, people, you know, tend more and more towards that maximum aim. Uh, so I think along those lines, you know, Athens strategy maybe has a little bit more of Cleon in it from the beginning, um, at least uh, potentially, maybe it's not executed that way, the same way the initial Spartan strategy is not executed really against the Athenian empire, but more sort of to punish Athens. But as the war goes on, you see these strategies become a little more aggressive, a little more, um, you know, to use a Klaswitzian term, to have a more positive object. Um, so I think you're right at the beginning, Athens has a negative object. I think that uh, ironically, um, they have a much more grandiose and positive and, you know, kind of totalizing objective in peace than they do in war, at least initially. Okay. Uh, John, we'll move the question to you next. Well, when Sparta actually marches in and invades Attica, their aim is free the Greeks. Again, it's pretty maximal from the very beginning. You know, pre-war, Archidamus wants to negotiate, but once the war begins, their aims are, are maximal. They, uh, they scale back after they lose uh, 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 on the island of Sphacteria uh, to just free the POWs. But initially, again, remember, their prime directive is free the Greeks, which is unconditional surrender, as we would call it. Uh, the Spartan strategy uh, is flawed in many ways, as is the Athenian. Uh, 
Pericles has got the bubble, though. He understands that the Athenian army and the Spartan army can't clash in direct arms because if they do, the Athenians will lose a big battle on land. And he tells the Athenian people in his big net assessment, he says, if we lose our army, the result could be catastrophic because it will lead to revolts in the empire. The main purpose of the Athenian army is not to fight the Spartans. The main purpose of the Athenian army is to keep the empire in check, to put down rebellions within the empire. A major defeat on land of the Athenian army will spur rebellions within the empire. And that's the Spartan theory of victory, and Pericles understands it and says we won't do that. Now, Pericles' strategy, uh, again, here I'm highly critical. Uh, I'll give him a C, like Mark would, uh, not even a C plus, is too passive. Uh, there's not really uh, a sense of Cleon about him. I mean, he hopes that by frustrating the Spartan strategy, not fighting the land battle, dominating the seas by beating the Corinthian, Megarian, Peloponnesian League fleets whenever they come out, that the Spartans will realize that they can't achieve their objective because they can't beat the Athenian navies. Hence, they can't free the Greeks. They can't impose unconditional surrender. So uh, that's great but it requires that the Spartans give up their aim. And the Spartans don't aren't being punished enough. They're not being coerced enough to want to give up their aim. They're not being asked to pay a heavy price. And so once Pericles passes from the scene, you then have the beginning of a real debate about strategy within Athens that pits Cleon against Nicias. And Cleon, I think, has got the bubble. Uh, which is that you really have to ratchet up the costs on uh, the Spartans. Now, here's where Thucydides plays fast and loose with the facts. Uh, he doesn't like Cleon, because Cleon was probably the leader that had Thucydides banished after he lost Amphipolis. So he has nothing good to say about Cleon. But Cleon understands what needs to be done. Uh, um, Athens reaches out to Argos at this time. Uh, Argos tells them they're not willing to fight at this period. He also uh, understands that there has to be bases planted around the Peloponnese to uh, raise hell with the helots, to threaten the whole social political stability of the Spartan regime, uh, that if uh, Sparta is going to demand unconditional surrender, well, two can play that game. Uh, uh, Cleon is a nasty piece of work, and that's why I like him. Uh, he understands what has to be done to punish the Spartans, to get them to be serious either about negotiations or if they're not willing to negotiate, then to destabilize the whole Spartan system, to make this a war uh, uh, to the knife, a real zero-sum game. And I think Cleon has a, a pretty good understanding of what is required to get the Spartans off-center, to get them to be willing to negotiate. This is the type of question that we face in Ukraine today. You know, how much do you have to punish somebody to where they say, oh, I give up on my aim? Uh, uh, again, either part of a bargaining or, or move to war a more unlimited objective of overthrowing the enemy regime. So these are fundamental questions that this great book by Thucydides uh, raises, even if I disagree with him about Cleon. <sighs> And I definitely want to pull that thread, but but first we'll go to Josh for a reaction to that. Yeah, something John said really uh, just stood out to me in talking about sort of the very passive nature of Pericles' strategy versus the more aggressive nature of Cleon's. And I think that that's a question that's so fundamental. I think your example of Ukraine was spot on, is what's the right balance there? When you know, when is When are you too passive? When are you too aggressive? And if you fail to calibrate that properly, does that not only, you know, result in disaster for you, whether it's, you know, kind of something like the plague on the passive side, something like the Sicilian expedition on the aggressive side. Um, and when do you kind of foreclose a war termination opportunity because you're, you know, one or the other. Um, so I think, you know, thinking about Ukraine and thinking especially about the chairman's remarks over the past you know few weeks, it, I think that's a, a calibration question. And you can see that, you know, someone like Pericles might be too nuanced to do it. And someone on the other hand, like Cleon, like as John said, is maybe too nasty a piece of work to be able to take uh, the right level of aggressiveness uh, to the situation, or at least be able to turn uh, maybe a success into something uh, less fundamental, less unlimited in aim, if that's an off-ramp uh, that's available. So 
super pertinent question even today. Okay. Um, so next one. Can, can I just jump in here, John? Oh, yeah, uh, go um, ahead. Go ahead. You know, Cleon's strategy coupled with Pericles's more limited aims of negotiation obviously would have worked after the Spartans were taken prisoner on the island of Sphacteria. The Spartans were willing to negotiate, throw their allies, Corinth, Megaro, uh, Thebes, under the bus. They were willing to negotiate at that point. So Pericles' aims and Cleon's strategy make for what we would call a strategy policy match. Uh, but at this point, Cleon is ratcheting up the aims. He wants something more than a negotiated settlement. Uh, and again, this leads to the question of uh, today about Ukraine. Uh, can uh, the West convince, do, first of all, do we want to convince, but can we convince Zelensky to negotiate away portions of his country, say Crimea or portions of the Donbass? Um, Zelensky is showing no, uh, and it seems like the Ukrainian people back him, no inclination to want to negotiate, despite, as Josh said, the chairman coming out and saying maybe it's time to negotiate. We're putting words into his mouth, but but nonetheless suggesting that there ought to be a negotiated settlement here. And and that sentiment has been raised not just by the chairman, but by a number of people uh, in the West. So how much pressure the West will put on Zelensky to negotiate um, is an important question of whether he's willing to negotiate. So these questions of when to negotiate, when you have the leverage, military leverage, are you willing to settle for less or do you go for more and why, hence protract the war? Why negotiate when you're winning, right? When you're uh, yes. the upper hand. So. Uh, Mark, let's go. The original question was theory of victory for Athens. So but you're on, you're on mute, but let me, let me unmute you. Here we go. I agree with what Jonathan John has said. Uh, I would just think that this kind of illustrates, and this is the utility of, of the Peloponnesian War, um, of the principles of warfare. Uh, one, uh, when you know, you're supposed to aim everything at the enemy's center of gravity, but if you're a whale fighting an elephant, that makes it very problematic. So what do you then do? You aim at the enemy's critical vulnerabilities. Uh, and here, the like John pointed out, the helots, are the Achilles heel of all of Sparta. And it's only Cleon that really reaches out and touches and tries to make inroads there. And even he isn't successful in really building up a, a, an internal rebellion in, in Sparta. So one has to wonder, did when Cleon refused to negotiate, did he plan on trying to take more territory and trying to get a rebellion among the Helots? Because he thought that was his theory of victory. Um, so you know that's another good thing. The, the other point is, that, that, like you mentioned, the principle of continuity. When momentum is going on your side, uh, you are often surpassed. You often surpass your culminating point of attack and victory uh, because you want to keep the pressure up on the enemy. And here you see uh, Cleon surpassing his, his uh, culminating point of victory uh, because he thinks he's got uh, the uh, Spartans right where he wants them. And again, this is and again, even Clausewitz admits this. You know, that it's very difficult uh, to really understand where your culminating point of victory is. And oftentimes you see it after you've surpassed it or if you have uh, you know, gone too not long enough, far enough uh, to reach it. Uh, so those are the, some of the enduring lessons, I think, that you can draw from the Peloponnesian War. Okay, so let's pull on this thread that we that we just talked about because I think it's it's it is very illustrative of, of a number of of course themes and concepts. This concept of uh, Pylos happens, um, you know, number of Spartiates are are taken prisoner, and now the Spartans change their tune. Um, Cleon is is as you just mentioned, Mark, not of the mind to do that, but it also seems to me too that because we talk about the concept of war termination we say what do we demand politically how far do we go militarily and then how do we enforce the peace to, to end the war and this is an opportunity to end the war but the wrinkle that we throw in, in in this particular course is winning the peace so it's not just ending the war which there's an opportunity to do here but it's have you won a better state of peace have you made a better state of peace and it seems like if the war ends at this point, 
perhaps maybe Cleon does not think that he's establishing a better state of peace, even if, if from his only uh, from his point of view, like uh, Basil Littlehart would say. Um, so, uh, Mark, we'll we'll start this one with you. Well, I, mean, I agree with you. Um, and again, John has pointed out quite well that uh, the Spartans are looking for regime change. Uh, so Cleon, by this point, completely understands that. So he's trying to, uh, I think, look for regime change on, the, on, on Sparta as well. Uh, so I think both the value of the object for Themistocles actually go, I mean, uh, for Cleon uh, actually goes up because he's got victory fever. He's got the principle of continuity and he's going, well, I'm going to end this once and for all, which you're going to see over and over. You see this in the Korean War. You can see this many times. You can even see this in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, where the United States goes for complete regime change instead of resolving uh, the issue in a more narrow focus. Uh, so this is a, a constant problem that you see in all wars, which again redounds to why the Peloponnesian War is so very important for us to study. Because as Thucydides points out, this isn't just a case for the time, it's a, it's a, he's using this as a case study for the future. Right? Uh, and as bold and arrogant as that prediction is, it comes true because human nature hasn't changed since 2,500 years. And the essential character of the human beast, the power seeking aspects of leaders and countries all remain exactly the same. And that's why these principles are enduring the things that we can extrapolate from this war. So while I give it a C in terms of thesis with evidence support, I give it an A++ in the Christmas story vein, um, because we can use this as such a useful tool um, for strategists to go back and analyze. Okay, uh, Josh, we'll go to you next. I, I'll, I'll second Mark's A++. I, I love this book um, and I think it's so interesting. The better state of peace question is really interesting because I think, you know, as Mark pointed out, you know, Cleon has a very specific idea in mind of what that might look like. And I think as we sort of look at this uh, with a critical eye, maybe we're being too uh, optimistic, Pollyannish, you know, pie in the sky. We think a better state of peace is something like, as he said, that sort of settles it once and for all. Um, and I think, you know, case in point is that um, th this war ends in 404, but Athens and Sparta will scrap for almost, you know, the next, I mean, you know, 70 years after that, down to, uh, you know, when uh, Alexander comes down from uh, Macedonia. But I think if we kind of look at the better state of peace very narrowly, not as what makes Athens dominant or Sparta dominant, and the other one subservient, what just makes them maybe a little more likely to achieve their aims in peace. So if Athens is looking to expand, you know, economically and slowly maybe strangle uh, Sparta or the Peloponnesian League and remove them as an obstacle, Maybe that doesn't require Sparta to be, you know, raise the helots to overthrow the Spartiates and Sparta to cease to exist like Carthage style. Maybe it's just to build in things the way they built them into the 30 years truce or try to build them into the peace of Nicias. They kind of set up the system to allow those things to happen. I think, you know, a great example of this we'll look forward to uh, in a few weeks is going to be the end of World War II and the way uh, the U.S. and some of uh, the other allies try to set up a system um, that definitely makes a better state of peace from their point of view, but isn't exactly um, a draconian one or a Carthaginian one against uh, Germany and Japan. Uh, so maybe in this case, both Athens and Sparta, or at least their leaders, have too narrow a vision of what better state of peace is. Think of it clearly in terms of victory and defeat, while not as trying to build advantages in the system that can be realized over the long term for their benefit, to aid their grand strategy. Okay. Uh, John, any thoughts on this one? Well, um, here we get back to systemic and underlying forces and uh, decisions for war and peace, for that matter. And if a peace had been negotiated um, after the Spartan defeat uh, on the island of Sphacteria, you can see where uh, yeah, you can put together another 30 years peace, but it's unlikely to last just like the 30 years peace didn't last and just like the peace of Nicias doesn't last that there is something fundamental at stake in this rivalry between these two great powers that is leading them toward conflict and as a consequence of of that 
you could get a piece, but I'm not sure it's a better state of peace for either Sparta or for Athens because back to what Mark said earlier, these two countries look at each other as rivals. They see them as threats to their security, each of them. Uh, so there's something underlying and fundamental here. Again, that doesn't mean the war is inevitable. The Soviet Union and the U.S. Um, had a long rivalry, and yet it didn't result in war. Now, maybe that was because of nuclear weapons, uh, a technology that the Greeks didn't have. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union didn't end up having World War III, a, a big Armageddon clash. Um, so perhaps by not putting together these various pieces, um, you could prolong and avoid conflict over the long haul until one society or the other, Athens or Sparta, presumably Athens, will come out and be the leading state within Greece because they're much more dynamic and creative. Than, but, but, but again, there is something fundamental at stake here, and I think that's recognized by leaders on both sides. Both states threaten each other, and so it's hard to imagine a real better state of peace coming about by a negotiated settlement. But I'm not sure that uh, a fight to the finish is going to lead to a better state of peace either. You know, as Josh said, the Spartans win, hoopla. <laughs> they, they, what do they win? Uh, they're defeated uh, soon after by Thebes, their ally turned enemy. So uh, uh, it's not clear that Sparta had a better state of peace by winning this war either. Um, interesting. Yeah, and, uh, just jump in uh, for a second, yeah. John. Um, I think one of the important things to understand is the role that alliances have here. Uh, because essentially both city-states are drawn into this conflict because of the alliances. The Corinthians are, you know, are, are the major uh, city-state in the, um, the Peloponnese alliance with Sparta. Uh, and they're the ones flaming uh, the, 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 the war. But also, you've got to remember that Pericles starts the Dalian League, or not Pericles, but the Athenians start the, 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 the Dalian League as a defense against another Persian invasion. But over time, the league changes from one that's a voluntary league to a compulsory league and a, and a tool of exploitation by the, on the part of the Athenians. Um, and so that makes their, it fundamentally transforms their, their uh, alliance uh, and makes it less stable uh, because they're other allies are beginning to go, you know, you're exploiting me. I'm not sure I want to maintain this. So a lot of it is the insecurity of the Athenians going, hey, look, you know, we've got to have a firm grip on our allies. And that means we have to look tough. We have to make decisions uh, that uh, probably aren't in our interests. Uh, and, and as a result, they're getting drawn into getting sucked into this, uh, this, uh, this war based on honor based on credibility of their alliance. And both the Spartans and the Athenians really in many ways, one could argue, go to war to support their honor and credibility uh, as well as their own self-interest and power. So again, this is another great lesson that Pericles leads to. And it, it, he talks about the idea that um, if you're going for credibility and honor, is that a rational decision-making or is that more of an emotional uh, passion uh, argument that you're making. And, and the two are, are, are intertwined because one can easily make the, the argument that, look, credibility for a major power is critical for their ability to maintain their power and to maintain their alliance. On the other hand, does it kind of subvert your rational calculus and artificially increase the value of the object, making you risk higher costs to achieve that, that stability? Uh, in your alliance. So that's that's another great question that the Peloponnesian War raises. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll pull on that thread uh, for a little bit because I know Mark- A lot of threads you're pulling. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we're weaving them together. We're weaving them, <laughs> we're pulling them together. Uh, I know how you love talking about the tension between rationality and irrationality. Mm -hmm. So one of the more interesting thing, and we usually talk about it in, in terms of an ethical concept is, the way that the Athenians respond to revolts in their empire, Mytilene uh, very early in the war, but then later on, Milos, uh, which isn't even actually in their empire, they're a neutral uh, uh, polis uh, island, uh, but a drastically different uh, response in, in, in terms of how the Athenians respond. 
Um, so, and I know Mark, we'll, we'll start this one with you talking about the denigration well, of democracy over time. There are a lot of wonderful lessons um, from the Malayan dialogue. Uh, one, you see that the longer the war draws out, uh, the more likely uh, the viciousness of warfare is going to show itself. Um, so even though there's a only a dozen years between the Middleine and the Malayan uh, situations, you can see that Athens has transformed itself and become much less uh, flexible in the way they're going to deal. And so when the Malayans come along and say, hey, look, you know, let us remain neutral because in the long run, this is in your interest as well as ours. That, you know, you're going to create norms. And remember, uh, Athens, you're never going to, you're not going to stay a superpower forever. All powers decline eventually. So if you establish these norms when you're in power, this will help the entire system uh, be better regulated uh, and it'll increase the humanity with, with which in, uh, uh, city states interact. And then the Athenians come with my all-time favorite line, right? The strong do what they have the power to do, and you, Malayans, are the weak. You accept what you must. Um, and it was basically a clear uh, rhetorical response that, hey, look, be smart. We're much more powerful than you. And even though you're neutral and want to stay neutral, we can't afford to allow you to stay neutral. So you have two choices. You can go in and die on your principles, or you can be more flexible and pragmatic and allow us uh, what we want in, in the island and you can stay alive. And the Malayans, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, a ridiculous adherence to, to uh, principle, decide they're going to die on their sword and for the, for the principle of neutrality. Now, it's nice to believe in a principle, but it's not nice to sacrifice your entire society over it. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be drawn here. One is the naivete that the Malayans are going to get saved somehow and that, you know, the gods are on their side. And since they're right, they're going to win. And then the other side is get real, moron. Live because your principles meaning are meaningless unless you're there to actually, you know, talk about your principles and survive. Um, so that's my rather cynical take on that. Okay, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna push back just a little bit here on this one. <laughs> the contemporary example of Russia and the Ukraine wouldn't that line of thinking lead us down a, a path that would say, oh, if you're Ukraine, you should just, you know, no, not at all. And the reason the reason for that though is Ukraine has a sugar daddy. It's mm. called the United States and NATO. The Malayans, as neutrals, really didn't have a sugar daddy, even though they had far-fetched hopes that someone was going to intervene on their behalf. So there's a difference between thinking that the gods are going to intervene and that a tangible, massive power will intervene on your part. So there's a big difference. And remember, even in um, uh, you know, just war theory, uh, just war theory says you don't go to war unless you believe, believe you have a chance to win. Otherwise, it's not necessarily an ethical uh, decision. Hmm. Okay. And I say this as a nice Catholic boy. That's right. Just said bello, just in bellum, right? <laughs> okay, good deal. Um, John, any thoughts on this one? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, the case of Milos is fascinating. Uh, and, of course, one of the big um, topics of study from Thucydides. Uh, Milos was a neutral state. Uh, while we're not told this explicitly, no doubt it was used as a naval base in 427 when the Peloponnesian fleet went into the Aegean uh, in support of the revolt at Mytilene. Uh, and so the Athenians are aware of this and they say, you say you're neutral, but you're not neutral. You're pro-Spartan. You were used as a base for an attack on our empire to bring about revolt. And uh, after the defeat of uh, Argos and Athens at the Battle of Mantinea, the Athenians are much more conscious of their security. Uh, any maximal aim offensive strategy that they can do in the Peloponnese has now been lost by the defeat at Mantinea. And so now they realize they have to think more defensively of how they protect themselves. And that means how do they make sure to control the seas, to have command of the seas. And that means denying a naval base, a potential naval base to the Peloponnesian League uh, in the future. 
it's also the case that they're already thinking about an expedition out to Sicily. And so while they're sending a large force to Sicily, they want to be as secure as they can in the Aegean. It seems like that there is no real debate in Athens at this time. While Nicias and Alcibiades will debate whether it's a good idea to go to Sicily or not, it doesn't seem as if these leaders are uh, opposing each other on the question of Milos. There seems to be a really strong consensus in Athens that Milos is not neutral and something has to be done about this problem. So when the Athenians come down and say, hey, you're going to be part of our empire, whether you like it or not, the oligarchs, remember, Milos is not a democracy, it's an oligarchy. The oligarchs there decide, no, we're going to fight. Uh, I wonder if they had asked the people of Milos, do you want to die on your sword or not? I suspect they would have said, no, heck no, <laughs> we'd rather kill you guys and become part of the Athenian Empire and get rich uh, uh, and become a democracy. So there's an ideological dimension here as, as well to all of this. Now, what the Athenians do is cruel, of course. They destroy the city and then they plant colonists, their Athenian colonists on it. But, but again, uh, uh, an analogy to our own times, of course, is how the Taliban regime in Afghanistan uh, permitted Al-Qaeda to be a base for an attack on New York and Washington. Mm -hmm. And after September 11th, the United States went to Afghanistan, the Taliban regime, and said, you're either for us or against us. Turn over Al-Qaeda. It's not going to be a base or else we're going to invade you and overthrow your regime. Uh, and that, of course, led to a 20-year war in Afghanistan uh, in which a large number of people were killed. Uh, we invaded Afghanistan to go after, after al-Qaeda. And again, I think most of us believe that that was a justified uh, assault because uh, the Taliban were not neutral in some way. They're an ally of al-Qaeda. So uh, again, here, there's all sorts of modern analogs that we can point to. And as Mark said, Thucydides, by raising these questions, raises some really troubling questions uh, uh, about the behavior of countries, states, and leaders in the international system in their quest for security, and just how extreme sometimes the aims become uh, in that quest for security. Okay, interesting thoughts. Uh, Josh, any, uh, any ideas? Well, these are some deep waters. Um, I, I agree with both uh, John and Mark, I think. Who do you so agree with more though? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with you. As, as my mom used to say, I agree with you both the same. <laughs> no, I think- You're you know, a diplomat, Josh. Uh, I was well, a political scientist. <laughs> um, I think on the one hand, um, it's interesting to look at this from a moral dimension. And so, you know, one of the things you can track is maybe the, uh, sort of downfall of Athens sort of moral character or it's sort of moral right to lead. And you can look at decisions it made, whether it's, you know, Milos or Mytilene or moving the treasury uh, from, you know, Delos to Athens or, or, or maybe something else that show kind of its decline. That it's not making like the right decisions anymore. And it's kind of lost that moral claim to leadership that maybe it had at the end of the uh, Persian Wars. I think it's interesting because, you know, this is there's such a debate over what Milos signifies. Is it is it this important thing that's supposed to do that? Or is it, you know, a minor, you know, skirmish that just, you know, uh, ends very badly for uh, the Melians and that's it. Um, one thing I, I wish I could remember who wrote this, but really stuck with me is that um, there's there's no relation like between. Um, Milos and Sicily, other than one comes first and the other comes second. But Thucydides decides he's going to slow down and dedicate almost, you know, a third of a book to this insignificant action. As, as John said, there's no debate over it. We don't know what Athens, any of the leaders said. But for some reason, this was important uh, that he emphasized. And so I think, you know, it's important for us to ask why and try to get some of these, uh, you know, questions answered. The other thing I'll point out, and this maybe goes to some of that, you know, Athenian ambivalence is this, you know, sadly is not, you know, cruel um, compared to some of the other things that have happened. You know, other cities like Scione up in uh, Chalcidice um, and, and, you know, certainly the original fate of Mytilene have this thing, um, you know, threatened to them or have it carried out. Plataea, another one. 
And Thucydides doesn't actually pause to say, hey, this is awful. This was a horrible um, tragedy that shouldn't have happened, whereas he does in other places and highlights other cities. He didn't think their fate was quite right for them. Um, and so uh, it's interesting, kind of like Mark said, that, you know, some people argue that the, the millions aren't punished because they, you know, were, you know, idealists or something like that. They're punished because they were stupid. Uh, and it's their kind of false sense of hope that they're going to be rescued. That's that, that's dumb um, and, and, and nothing else. The, the last thing I, I think is super interesting. I really wish Thucydides would have lived to finish it because I think one of the things that, uh, you know, as Mark said, the millions say is these norms are important. You're not going to be in, on top forever, Athens. And wouldn't you like the same you know, kind of treatment we're asking for to be applied to you. And then ironically, I mean, we get this from Xenophon, who's not, you know, maybe as, as, as uh, deep a writer. Athens is in a very similar place. And Xenophon even writes that the Athenians at the end of the war fear that the same thing that they did the Melians is going to happen to them, but it doesn't. And so I wonder, I wish we knew what Thucydides would have made of that, what he would have written and how he would have interpreted that and maybe try to equate those two things or have them in common uh, conversation with each other. Because I think that the contrast between what Athens does to Milos, what Athens fears Sparta is going to do to them and what actually happens, you know, is like we, we could spend hours talking about that and still not have a good answer because it, it, it's such an interesting question. It's because the Spartans have more honor, right? They win in battle, you know. <laughs> well, interestingly, you know, they have more honor. It's that they wanted to keep Athens around as a power balance against Corinth. Uh, you know, the Corinthians wanted to slaughter the Athenians, uh, pull a Milos on them. But the Spartans said, no, no, no. Uh, a pro-Spartan dictatorship, the 30 tyrants in Athens, is a good check on you, Corinth. Uh, so, uh, again, it's uh, realpolitik is the one that is dominating uh, Spartan thought. The Spartans might be doing a lot of one-arm push-ups uh, and be real muscle men. But at the same time, they're not dummies. They understand the balance of power. Uh, Josh yeah, has good. raised some really important points here about yeah. uh, uh, Milos, and especially that somehow there's a cosmic justice that what goes around comes around, and that the people of Milos are highlighting this, that what you're doing to us is so offensive, it's infamous, that the result will be someday you will get your comeuppance. Uh, and again, that is a good lesson uh, for any great power operating in the international system of where they intervene in the world, uh, just how dangerous it can be uh, and protracted and costly it can be. So I, I, I heartily yeah, agree. Can I just jump in here, John, because I think you're, you're, you're making a really important point. And that is, why do other states follow a major power? <laughs> and the ultimate answer is because it's in their interest to do so. And that's one of the things you can extrapolate from the Malayan dialogue, because that's what the Malayans are trying to say, you know, uh, that if you represent the norms that are in everyone, everyone's interest, then everyone is more likely to follow you. And this has a direct uh, uh, point with regard to the 21st century. Do you want to follow the United States? Uh, that has spread markets, that has spread uh, at least democratic ideals, that have created institutions that are in everyone's interest? Or do you want to follow China, even though it's a rising power uh, and increasingly uh, economic powerhouse, but the, do their values, are they in your interest? Or do you see China as a predatory state uh, that if it does become the lone hegemon, do you really want to live under that system? Um, so, again, you know, that's one of the things that we can discuss as a result of the, the lessons that Thucydides uh, puts forth. Interesting. So that's actually a good segue as we as we come to the end of our time uh, together here today, gentlemen. Um, last final thoughts in terms of key takeaways of the Peloponnesian War and what can we use for the contemporary realm from uh, from this particular uh, case study. And uh, Josh, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I, this is a, a better segue than I realized. I think, you know, something that both John and Mark said really came together for me. So, you know, John made reference to the fact that the Spartans aren't dummies. They, they know what they're doing. And there's this great line actually in the Melian dialogue where uh, the, the Melians say, oh, Sparta's going to come help us. You know, it's the right thing to do. 
And the Athenians say, you know, Sparta is great at saying the right thing to do is the thing that's most advantageous for them at the time. Um, and I mean, kind of it's a pretty sick burn because they obviously don't come and help uh, the Melians there. But I think it speaks to something that I think is a, a really important takeaway from this is that, you know, and this goes back to the question we talked about at the beginning is sometimes, you know, maybe the right decision is also a, a, a practical one. So, you know, Xenophon writes the reason um, Sparta is spared Athens because they've done, you know, so much for Greece over the years. They fought the Persians and they needed, they, they couldn't do that to a city like that. But as John pointed out, like, they also had another plan. And so by not destroying Athens, but installing, you know, a, a pro-Spartan oligarchy as a balance against Corinth, that's both kind of the right thing to do and a pretty smart thing to do as well. And I think that that's one of those balances. If we go back to the idea of leaders making decisions, if you can balance those things, because um, Mark pointed out, you know, it's really brave and noble and just for the million oligarchs to say, no, we're going to we're going to stand by our principles, but it's not super smart for them to do that. If you can find a way to balance that smart thing with that, um, you know, practical thing, or sorry, a smart thing with that just thing, I think that might be a solution to a lot of problems. Maybe that's a solution to the war termination issue we looked about earlier. Maybe we can do something like Sparta at the end, come up with something that seems right for everybody, but also is pretty smart too. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a great post-Navy career, Josh. You can, you can market that one. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, we'll go to you next. Oh, well, I, there's so much. It's such a rich dialogue. Um, one of the things, and this goes back to one of my favorite made-up principles, is that warfare is far too complex uh, to think that you're going to get everything right uh, and that the ultimate winner is the one who makes the fewest mistakes. So you have to be less incompetent than your enemy. Uh, and what we see here is that the Spartans make fewer mistakes. Uh, and they are also able to get the Persians on their side. But that ends up being a short-term brilliant move and a long-term not-so-brilliant move because who benefits from the Peloponnesian War more than anyone else? The Persians do. Uh, so one of the things that's really fascinating about this is smart people doing stupid things and not actually being able to figure out how to either prevent the war, how to deter your adversary, or how to reassess and adapt in a timely fashion. And then you also have another one of my, my uh, obsessions, and that's premature cognitive closure, uh, in which it seems, and this is a big problem today as well as, as well as it was in the Peloponnesian War, the idea that leaders increasingly see the scope of options narrowing and narrowing and narrowing so that they have no choice but to go to war. That's the role that irrationality plays. The, the, the importance of diplomacy and, strate and strategy is to provide as many options as possible, to be flexible, to be able to reassess and adapt uh, very quickly. But what we see here, and this is the first major case study that we're doing this semester, but you can see this in every single case study of the difficulty of creating more options, of reassessing and adapting, of being creative during the war um, so that it allows you to be less incompetent than your adversary. I think that's one of the great lessons that the entire course uh, pushes through, um, and it starts with the Peloponnesian War. Awesome. John, final thoughts. Well, as a final thought, uh, again, just what a great, rich text Thucydides is that deserves to be studied and closely studied. Uh, and the more you read and study it, the more you come back to it, the more insights you see. Uh, it is definitely a possession for all time and one that helps us to think better, to apply it, which is the purpose of our strategy courses. It's the application of history and theory to think better about today. And I heartily second what Mark said, which is that if it induces in us some humility, some sense of prudence, uh, of being more careful and understanding that when we're talking about these matters of war and peace, and also how to wage war, that we uh, understand uh, just how difficult it is to execute things in the way we want and how important it is to avoid mistakes. And the best way to avoid mistakes is to have uh, good frameworks of analysis for thinking through problems, 
uh, to debate problems in a serious way, uh, solutions or answers to various problems like we try to do in the strategy courses. Again, to have some intellectual, that intellectual toolkit to guide us. And Thucydides, if I were to read one book uh, about one war, uh, this would be it because it is so great. He is a great historian, but he is also, as Mark said, maybe the first political scientist. It's so theoretically rich. Um, and it certainly has been a staple at the War College uh, almost from the very beginning because Mahan referred uh, to uh, uh, Thucydides. And certainly since the reforms of Admiral Stansfield Turner in the 1970s, uh, it has been a staple of the course here. In fact, one of the uh, academic advisors to Admiral Turner when he was looking to put together a new curriculum and strategy here at the War College, one of his academic advisors said to him, you know, Admiral, as long as you have the students read Clausewitz and Thucydides, you've got the basis for a great course on strategy. Mm. Uh, and I heartily second that recommendation. And we have followed that recommendation since the early 1970s of beginning our courses with these two great theorists, Clausewitz and Thucydides. Mm. Awesome. Outstanding. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for an inter entertaining and, uh, and fascinating discussion as always. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, John and Josh as well.